Amen. Thank you, Katie, for being here and sharing with us. If you don't understand what's happening, these are mission partners that we're bringing in once a month because your tithes and offerings go to support these ministries. Salome is sharing the gospel with, they make no, you know, pretense about their desire to evangelize with these refugees who are coming through their doors and they're providing health care to a lot of people that other healthcare companies don't want to provide healthcare to, the uninsured, the marginalized. I'm pretty sure 100% of our refugee congregation down the hall right now, our Swahili Baptist Church at Woodmont, since they were brought here by the government, Salome intakes all refugees who come to Nashville. They have to go through Salome. Our government contracts with them because they're really good at it. So when you give to Woodmont Baptist Church, Part of that tithe and offering goes to support our mission partner, Salome. So thank you for your participation in the gospel by giving to this organization. All this rain, man. (laughs) You know, I feel like, have you heard of this seasonal affective disorder? Sad, right? It's a thing. I feel like I live in Seattle now here in uh, Nashville, and uh, it can really get you down. But it is important to remember that as you read through the Old Testament, that the the prophets would beseech the Lord for rain. They would ask the Lord to bring rain on the land in order to produce vegetation and life. It was a sign of of God's favor and provision and blessings. So we need to remember that as we bemoan the weather this week. (laughs) Our text for today is one of the most important texts in all of Scripture for understanding the core of the Christian faith, what the Christian life is supposed to be all about. It's a really important text. And last week we talked about how Jesus knows how broken we are, how flawed we are, how we just sang, how the shadows of this world tend to deepen and and extend as we feel that this world is a fallen, broken place and we long for redemption. Today we're going to see what Jesus' solution is is to that problem of fallenness and, and sinfulness. So let's stand, if you're able to, this morning in honor of God's word as I read our text for today from the majestic third chapter of the Gospel of John, John 3, 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Excuse me. I'm good. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, it seems like these days when you hear the phrase born again, if you're kind of 
prone towards cynicism like I am, you, you may kind of roll your eyes at that phrase. It seems like born again is more often used in our culture today to describe a, a political subset of so-called evangelicals. People who are born again are seen to be of a certain political bent. That's the most often context in which I hear the phrase born again used, and that is sad. It's not a political designation. It's a spiritual one, and we need to remember that. To be born again is not something to shy away from. What exactly are we saying, though, when we say that someone has been born again? What do we mean by that if we're not talking about politics? What does it mean for us to say, I have been born again? What am I declaring at that point? Our son Jude has a project at school called Wax Museum. It's kind of a weird, I don't understand it all. Every student has to pick a certain historical figure, and they, they have to do a research project on this historical figure, and then they, I guess they stand still and pose next to their trifold board with their project on it, and they stand there like a wax museum figure, and people come by and, and read all their projects. It sounds interesting, I guess, educational. Jude's first choice was John Lennon, which I thought was a pretty cool choice. I'm a big Beatles fan, and we got a note home. I don't know if the teacher knows that I'm the pastor here, but she sent a note home saying, I think that's a morally objectionable choice. And I said, oh, goodness, okay, then we'll change it. I'm sorry. <laughs> he, he picked James Naismith, the inventor of basketball. He was a preacher, by the way. He was a pastor before he invented basketball. It's fun to pretend to be someone else. It's fun to dress up at Halloween. You know, the, the, the Rogers clan does it up right every year at Halloween. They just keep raising the bar, I feel like. I, I did the same kind of project when I was a sophomore in high school. I dressed up as Ben Franklin. It wasn't Wax Museum. We, we actually gave a presentation in character. And I was Benjamin Franklin because I was raised in Franklin. I attended Franklin High School. Go Rebels. I found him to be a fascinating person who contributed a lot to our country as it is today. And I found out in the course of my research that Ben Franklin was a deist. He, he held a membership at a Presbyterian church. He kept a pew, you know, with paying his dues, a uh, politically savvy move, but he was a deist. I, I didn't understand what deism really was until I got into college and seminary. Deism is the idea that there is indeed a creator God, that, that God is a good God who made the world and he, and he set it up and then he kind of, like a watchmaker, wound it up and then just kind of sat back and he's not active in it. He's not involved in the work of making all things new. He's just letting things go their natural course, which couldn't be further from Christianity. So one of the greatest preachers that ever lived during that time in the 1700s was George Whitfield. His, his likeness is carved into the pulpit at Beeson Divinity School, where I attended, along with John Hughes and John Knox and some other John that I'm probably forgetting. George Whitfield became friends with Benjamin Franklin. Ben Franklin attended one of these huge rallies that became part of the first great awakening in the colonies and it was a marvel, the 20,000 people that could all audibly understand what Whitfield was saying due to technological ways that they staged things. And, and Ben Franklin was moved. He was moved, he said, by his ability to captivate an audience, but I think he was moved by the gospel. 
by the truth and the power of the greatest news ever told. And so he developed a relationship with Whitfield, and Whitfield knew that Ben Franklin needed to be born again, that he had not received Christ. He had not come to the altar and laid down his life at the foot of the cross and say, it's all yours, Jesus, like Whitfield was calling on these colonials to do so. So many years later, Whitfield wrote Franklin a letter, and it said, I find you grow more and more famous in the learned world, and you have made such progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity, and I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important and interesting study, and when mastered, will richly repay you for your pains. I read this morning that the Lord rewards those who seek him. It's true. You know, dressing up as a famous historical figure is not the same thing as actually being another person. We all know that. We also know plenty of people who claim to be born again, and yet their lives bear no evidence that they are any kind of new creation So what we're going to see through this encounter through John 3 with Jesus and Nicodemus is that new birth is necessary in order to follow Christ and enter the kingdom of heaven. And new birth means being made brand new from head to toe, becoming a completely new creation. There's something special about brand new things. You know, in my materialism, I I love the way a new car smells. You know, I love a new pair of shoes. New relationships, new friendships are fun to have, right? New job, new new chapters in our life. They're all exciting and special. You know, when Isaiah was born, our our two-year-old a couple years ago, it had been a while since Morgan and I had done this whole newborn thing. There was a six-year age difference, not six, five years, I guess, between Jude and between Isaiah and May, and and we we began grasping at straws for anything that would soothe him when he was doing that whole newborn screaming thing, and we found that uh, one of our favorite songs at the the time did the trick every time, Uh, Ben Rector's Brand New. We'd play that song, and he would start bouncing. It's got a real beat to it, and he would calm down, so we would just crank that up in the car all the time, and he would stop screaming. And the lyrics say, I feel like new sunglasses, like a brand new pair of jeans. I feel like taking chances. I feel a lot like 17. I feel like windows rolled down, new city, streets and cabs. I feel like anything can happen. Laughing, you take me right back when we were kids. Never thought I'd feel like this. Like when I close my eyes and don't even care if anyone sees me dancing. Like I can fly and don't even think of touching the ground like a heartbeat skip, like an open page, like a one-way trip on an aeroplane. It's the way that I feel when I'm with you, brand new. Now granted, this song is about a girl, I assume, and his relationship, but it's clear that that, that he loves this feeling of of being brand new, of being like a child, of, of being brand new again. There's a certain joy that comes from having a childlike innocence and freedom that we know before we become adults and get jaded by things like insurance and jobs and bills and all those adult things. I remember talking to Emmy when she graduated from PT school about adulting and how hard that can be to start doing all those things. 
and I pray you don't get jaded in me and all you young adults uh, as you go through life as well. But the truth is we all are worn down by this world. It's what necessitates the new birth. And last week, we we talked about how we're all born sinful, how we enter this world under the same terminal diagnosis of sin. We're we're born flawed and, and broken, and we're desperately sick and in need of a miraculous remedy. So this encounter with Nicodemus that we see will show us the way that we can indeed become well. And the only way that we can be healed is to become brand new. Some commentaries, I'm sure you've heard this text preached before if you've ever been in a Baptist church. Odds are you've probably heard John 3 preached before in a sermon. And a lot of commentaries and a lot of sermons that I've heard growing up paint Nicodemus as kind of a dummy. That he's, he's kind of a you know, doofus who doesn't get what Jesus is talking about. But I don't think that's the case. After, after reading a commentary by a guy named Kent Hughes, I, I'm seeing this in a different light You know, all these sermons that I've heard is that he's not real bright, he he doesn't get what Jesus is saying, but I'm starting to really admire and respect Nicodemus. We're going to have part two next week, but let's just set this up today. Nicodemus is kind of the perfect person for Jesus to talk to about the new birth and to teach us about how we can become brand new. Verse one tells us about Nicodemus' background. It says he's a, a Pharisee. You know, the Pharisees were one of those sects of Judaism that during the first century was kind of competing for power. All the, the leaders in, in Jerusalem were part of the Sadducees for a while, but the Pharisees were, were growing in their power and control in the first century. And you know, the Pharisees, they took their faith very seriously. They weren't messing around when it came to God. They took God to be the utmost authority. They didn't play religious games they, they attempted to follow the letter of the law because they believed God's ways are best. I believe that too. On the Sabbath day, when all work was forgiven, they wouldn't carry more food than the weight of one dried fig. So like carrying a loaf of bread to the table would be forbidden because it was too heavy and that would quantify as work. So they would take one bite at a time basically from the kitchen to the table in order to avoid work. Sounds like more work, right? (laughs) They wouldn't carry any more milk at any given time than could be swallowed in one gulp because that would quantify as work. Of course, that seems crazy to us, right? But you have to admire their commitment to God's ways and their attempt to follow God's ways. They understood that those ways are the best ways, and so they committed themselves to fully living out those ways. Of course, they missed the boat on it. They were following the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law, but that's another sermon. Next, the the next verse, this same verse says that Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. That means he's part of the Sanhedrin. You know, the Sanhedrin was a group of about 70 men who really dictated all of the rules and regulations for all Jewish people in the world. They, were, they, they acted as the board of directors in the temple. They had a CEO who was the high priest, and they would meet in the temple there, and they would rule on certain interpretations of Scripture, which ones were right and which ones were wrong. They would decide how to direct temple funds 
or appoint new priests within the temple's staff. And there's evidence that Nicodemus was even part of an aristocratic family, the Maccabees. The Maccabees overthrew the Seleucid Empire, and they, they set up a, a Jewish kingdom again in Jerusalem for over 100 years. They're Jewish superheroes. He comes from that line, maybe, we think. So compare the credentials of Nicodemus, this aristocratic Jewish leader, teacher, very well-educated, very intelligent, compared to Jesus, who apparently was a self-taught rabbi. He was a carpenter's son from Nazareth, a little hick town in the middle of Galilee, which, could anything good come from Nazareth, as Philip said? It's, it's true that, it, it, Nathaniel said, sorry. It's, it's true that Jesus' credentials were not equivalent, but Nicodemus had heard about what was going on in Jerusalem. He had gotten swept up in the, the fervor of Jesus' new converts that saw the signs that he was doing in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. So Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night. There's a ton of books and plays that are mostly pretty bad called Nick at Night. I think that's horrible, <laughs> referring to this encounter. I think Nicodemus is honestly fascinated by Jesus. I think he's amazed by the signs that he's seen, the things that he's hearing, because he's an intellectual. He wants to know what this is all about. He's genuinely intrigued at the possibility that just maybe the Messiah, the Mashiach, who was promised in the Old Testament to come to God's people to rescue them and bring them back, just maybe he's come. Just maybe this Jesus guy is he the anointed one who was promised to rescue God's people. So he addresses Jesus in a respectful manner, befitting another rabbi to intellectuals who have concepts of Jewish law in their head. And they're exchanging ideas. That's kind of how he sees this conversation going. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God's with him. It's a nice compliment to kind of get the ball rolling in their conversation, but that's not how it works with Jesus. You don't sit down and exchange ideas and have coffee with Jesus. He is the Lord, enfleshed, God, indwelling man. It's not equals coming together to debate ideas. Jesus cuts them off right there and goes right to the heart of the matter. Look at verse three. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So immediately, this gets the wheels turning in Nicodemus's very learned head. Remember that he's not some theological dummy, but he's an incredibly well-educated religious official. Later in verse 10, we're gonna see that he's called the teacher of all Israel. He may have been one of the greatest instructional teachers during this time in Israel's life. I think he knew what Jesus was getting at when he said that you must be born again. I think he understood where Jesus was going. The rabbis of this time had a saying that they would use. They would say that a proselyte who embraces Judaism is like a newborn child. Everything that a proselyte thought they knew before coming into the Jewish faith was destroyed. All of their old experiences of reality were invalidated by a new reality, a higher reality in which they had now embraced. 
So it all had to be relearned. Everything that they had experienced was thrown out the window. They had to learn how to eat, how to walk, how to talk again, like a newborn child. So Nicodemus starts to dive deeper into this idea. Look at verse 4. He asks, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I've, I've taught this before with youth and said, gross, you know, and I, I think that's how a lot of sermons that I heard view this. But again, Kent Hughes says that Nicodemus is not naively suggesting some, some kind of crude gynecological miracle here. Remember, he's a brilliant, accomplished teacher and leader. He's instead, I think, showing his inner longing to be made brand new again. He knows deep down that a radical, fundamental change must take place in his life, and he longs for it. He knows he needs to be born again in order to become brand new. He knows it's necessary, but the question is how? How can I be born again? There's nothing that Nicodemus wants more. And all this meticulous law-keeping, carrying not more than a loaf of bread, that's not gotten him anywhere. He's still the same old, tired, jaded, worn-out, cynical man that he's always been. Again, our, our culture doesn't really understand this either because our culture increasingly preaches, especially to young people, the, the message that culture is telling us is that we're okay the way we are. I'm okay, you're okay. I, I call that the gospel of, the false gospel of I'm okay, you're okay. Much money is spent on trying to produce and obtain this lie because people want to hear it. The market for products that teach us that we're okay the way we are is driven by the demand of people who don't want to face the truth that they know deep down that they are more broken and sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Morgan and I did a parents' night out, like Trey said, and got away from the kids, and we went and saw The Greatest Showman like six months ago. It was a great, great movie. Hugh Jackman was P.T. Barnum, and there's a lot of music and singing and dancing. Y'all seen that? It's good. It's, it's a great movie. I wouldn't say anything bad about it, but I found myself shaking my head during the big climactic number in, in that movie. It's called This Is Me, and it's this big breakthrough when everyone starts to accept themselves just the way they are, and all these circus people gather, and they try to convince each other, I'm okay, and you're okay, just the way you are, even though they know deep down that they're not. The song they sing says, I'm not a stranger to the dark, hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say, no one will love you as you are. A lot of people get this message and it's terrible. It's not true. It's not true. Someone will love you as you are. His name is Jesus Christ. But I won't let them break me down to dust. I know that there's a place for us for we are glorious. Really? I don't feel glorious. When the sharpest words want to cut me down, I'm going to send a flood, going to drown them out. I am brave. I am bruised. You can hear them lying to themselves, right? They're not brave. I am who I'm meant to be. This is me. Look out, because here I come. I'm marching on to the beat. I drum. <laughs> I wouldn't want to march to my beat, man. It leads nowhere good. 
I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me, and I know that I deserve your love because there's nothing I'm not worthy of. Really? You believe you deserve everything? I mean, if my wife knows that I love her, but if I decided I wasn't ever going to help with the children or housework again, because I deserve her love anyway, I don't need to earn your love, she may have a problem with that. <laughs> she may have a bit of a problem. If I say, I deserve everything, I'm worthy of it all. It's a, it's a great song, it's super catchy. I mean, it's a, you know, it's inspiring even at some level, but I find it so sad and full of terrible irony. The one thing these people want is to be loved for, for full acceptance, and they don't think anyone will love them as they are, which has been their experience, sadly. And, and so instead of running into the open arms of the one who loves them completely and who accepts them completely, they simply declare that they're gonna march onto the beat of their own drum and hope for the best. And I can tell you that doesn't work. The poet, Alfred Lord Tennyson, he didn't feel that way. He was more honest. He refused to lie to himself. And in one of his big, long poems, he wrote, Oh, for a man to rise in me that the man I am might cease to be. Oh, for a man to rise in me that the man I am might cease to be. I need to become brand new. I know it. I know that I'm flawed. So are, are you there? I think Nicodemus was there. I think he was honest with himself. He knew that he needed a completely new beginning. Do we understand that? Do we understand that we're not okay? Do we understand that we need a miracle in order to become brand new? Do you know what it means to be born again according to John 3 and to understand how it actually can happen? In verse five, Jesus answers Nicodemus, truly, truly, twice he says that, truly, truly, amen, amen is what it is in Greek. It means verily, verily, twice he says it. This is true. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Again, a lot of commentaries that I looked at said Nicodemus didn't understand this. But again, I like what Kent Hughes says. He says that Nicodemus understood this perfectly. He knew that at that very time out in the wilderness, John the Baptist is baptizing people in water as a symbol of their inward life change. You know what the word is for that? We call that repentance. He also knew that the spirit of God, the, the ruach, which was over the, the, the spirit which was hovering over the waters at the beginning of all creation, the spirit is the one who creates new life, new things. He knows that. He's a scholar of the Hebrew Bible. The Spirit is the one who comes and creates new things into being. So creating a new thing by the Spirit is called regeneration. Unless you are born of all that water baptism signifies, which is repentance, and, and that which spirit baptism accomplishes, which is regeneration, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are the non-negotiables, repentance and regeneration. And what is repentance? 
It's, it's more than being sorry or, or even being contrite over your sin, but that's part of it. I used to define repentance as going your own way and stopping and turning around and going back to the Lord, returning to the Lord. And that's, that's getting closer to it, but even that doesn't really do justice to the words repentance. It's, it's more than that. It's more even than just asking Jesus into your heart. You know, people can ask Jesus into their heart without repenting, right? The, the current president of our convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, is a guy named J.D. Greer, and he wrote a great little book a few years ago called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. It's a great title. The, the biblical word, he says, for repentance comes from two words. One that means after or change or new. And the other word means mind or thought. It, repentance has to involve a change of mind. It's an attitude adjustment. J.D. Greer says, uh, repentance is not subsequent to belief. It's part of belief. It's belief in action. Repentance is a choice that flows out of conviction. Repentance is not merely changing your actions. It's changing your actions because you've changed your mind and your attitude about Jesus' authority and glory. Simply asking Jesus into your heart without repentance will not lead to regeneration. Being born again is a radical change that affects our mind, our hearts, and therefore our actions, every aspect of our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know this passage. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. That's what Jesus is talking about in verses 6 and 7. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You know, the radical change of new birth is not something that can be accomplished by human effort or human energy or human striving. It's a work of the spirit. And flesh cannot evolutionize into spirit. It has to die before it can become spiritual. You can't just transform it I'm a sucker for those transformation fitness programs, you know, those, remember P90X a few years ago? I almost spent so much money on P90X because you see these before and after pictures and you're like, oh, if that guy can do it, I can do it. I can put in the effort and do a ton of push-ups every day and, and I can get real strong and I can experience a change like that because I'll work at it. But you can't work at the new birth. No matter how much money you spend or how many DVDs you get or dumbbells you buy, it won't produce the kind of radical change that only the Spirit can produce. So the question for us today is, have you had a, an experience of new birth according to this definition? Not, have you had a religious experience? Have you walked an aisle? Have you been dunked? I don't care about any of that. I'm saying, have you been born again and made brand new? Perhaps as Jesus and Nicodemus are talking, they hear the wind come blowing down the narrow streets of Jerusalem. And that's why Jesus maybe says in verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here, look, being born of the Spirit is like your experience with the wind. 
You can feel the wind's effect. You can see the wind's effect, but you can't see the wind itself. For people who are truly born again, the effects of the Spirit in their lives are evident. They are visible, even though the Spirit remains invisible. So the application for us is this. Let's conduct an internal audit of our hearts and look for the wind of the Spirit. Are you a spiritual person? Is the Spirit stirring within you, causing you to bear forth the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Maybe you have experienced the new birth, but you've squashed the wind in your heart. You refuse to listen to the Spirit stirring your soul. Maybe you, you, you realize that your sinful nature has been ruling your life for too long now. Maybe you realize that you're feeling the wind of the Spirit in a raging tempest in your heart, and you need to respond. You clearly see the non-negotiables of repentance and regeneration, and you're ready to repent. You desire to be made brand new by the work of the Spirit, and you believe that Christ can do it. If that's you, then why not yield your life to him right now? Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for your Spirit who comes into our souls at the very moment that we surrender and cry out, save us, O Lord. And we lay our lives down at your feet, all that we are, our past, our present, our future, all of our sin, all of our hopes, and you take it upon yourself, and you make us brand new from the inside out. God, thank you for the new birth. Thank you that we're not ruled by our old selves. Thank you that we can die to ourselves, and it's no longer we who live, but it's Christ who lives in us and rules in us. God, I pray that you would help us to listen to the voice of the Spirit in our hearts as he leads us and produces new birth in us in ever-increasing measure. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to stand and sing a hymn that's appropriate, I Surrender All. Repentance is about surrendering, saying, God, I, I give you all that I am. And no matter if you've been a Christian for 75 years or for seven months, it's, it's appropriate to renew our submission and our surrender to God as we listen to the voice of his spirit. Let's stand and sing our hymn response. If you need to come forward and pray during this time, and if I try to come here, Jane, if you'll come forward here. If you just want to kneel at the altar and pray, I'll be here too. If you want to join our church or if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come right now.